0: Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, the major motion podcast, where we talk about the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online from the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm John Negroni, film editor for InBetweenDrafts.com. And from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he's a freelance film writer. And, you know, he also is a good guy. It's Will Ashton. Oh,
1: that's very sweet of you. Hey, John.
0: Hey there. Well, I'm being sweet to you, but really I'm going to do evil things to you, even though I'm acting nice. Ooh, that's, that's sneaky. Speaking of sneaky, we have somebody sneaking in as our guest this week from Seattle, Washington. He is one of our co hosts on Mad Men Men. That's the Mad Men podcast that Will and I do with this person. And he is, of course, Mike Overholes. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. How's it going, buddy? It's going super well. It's been uh, a while since I I don't know. Have the three of us ever done a CinemaHolics main show episode before? I know you've come on before, Mike. I was
1: going to say, I was thinking about it, and I know. Mike, you've come on, I think, two or three times uh, when I've guest-hosted. Uh, I know yeah. you were there for Cocaine Bear and Last Wages of Meter. Yep. Um, I can't remember if there was another one that you came on. I saw you are my go-to guy if there's a horror movie that John whistles is out on and doesn't see, or sees but doesn't talk about, and then you And Mike's going to say meet.
0: yes to it, because he's like, oh, we're going to to make fun of John? When he's yes, exactly.
1: Yeah, so it's always a fun time. Those episodes are fun uh, if anyone wants to check those out uh yeah <laughs> i like how you're yeah. promoting
2: that yeah that, i mean it's a, it's a,
0: it's a, you know a whole sub-genre of the mike and will horror cinemaholics it's true uh there's some horror stuff in this movie but uh really one of the main reasons i wanted to invite you on for this one mike i don't know if will agrees is that it's martin scorsese and i think uh of a lot of people i know who love movies who love film you're somebody i know who's been a longtime fan of Martin Scorsese and somebody who uh, has seen many, if not all of his films, right? I think we we all have our, our blind spots. Uh, Will, I think, had a, a very notable one until recently. He finally watched Goodfellas. But Mike, have, have you seen oh, every right. single Scorsese? I
1: thought you were going to say Cape Fear, which I also watched uh, recently. Oh, yeah, there is that
2: too. Yeah, I don't know how Will got through his life not watching Goodfellas, but uh, yes, Corsese is one of my, my favorite working directors. Um, I would say I've seen every one of his important movies, um, even the, the more non-important ones. Um, <laughs> I, I'm currently like doing a rewatch with my, my friend Levi through through all the movies, and it's just like the dis- uh, discography, the, his, his directing credits, it just runs deep. He's so good. Like, Goodfellas is a movie that did change my life in terms of making me love movies more. Like I'll never forget the first time I watched Goodfellas when I was like fourteen.
0: Yeah, Goodfellas was very influential for me. There, there are a few early movies from him I haven't seen. Um, like very early, like his '70s stuff. The uh, the only '70s movies I've seen from him besides Taxi Driver, it would would I guess be Mean Streets. I I, I never saw like Boxcar Bertha. Right, um, Mean Streets though love that movie i love the way it opens i love the cinematography i love the harvey keitel performance it's just i have a very it, it's not the best movie but it, it definitely i have a soft spot uh soft spot for it um what, what's your favorite scorsese mike if you have to pick i mean everybody knows mine's Goodfellas. like i don't have to dance around. It, i
2: mean it. it's raging bull it's raging bull without a question it's so good yeah
0: it, it's up there for me too, Pro- probably second or third for me. But uh, wh- what about you, Will? I know you you like a, you like Scorsese across the board. I know you like some of his later stuff, mm-hmm. um, particularly like recently. Like you were a fan of The Irishman, but oh yeah, uh, yeah. W- w- was there anything though that like really sticks out for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of bounce between two. It kind of depends on my mood. Uh, I mean, the obvious one would be Taxi Driver. That was my first score Well, actually, I think The Aviator was my fourth, first Scorsese, but. Tax Driver was the first one I remember. I watched it like 13 or 14, and I was just like, okay, this mm. is a director, you know. Like, I got to yeah. focus on this. I mean, I had known of him, but I didn't know the, like, the, the depths of his predicate.
0: Uh, you knew the man, but not the myth and the legend. Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, but I don't know. I often find myself going back to the camp comedy. I think that's one of his I've watched the most. I really do love comedy uh, Scorsese, like After Hours as well. And, I mean, all his movies, well, not all of them, but a lot of his movies have little bits of comedy. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon is no exception. But yeah. I just love when he really goes full ham. And I love a good dark comedy. I love a great character study. Um, and I, I love that Scorsese has been really championing Killers of the Flower Moon recently. He keeps, like, talking about it on TikTok and in He's interviews passionate. recently.
0: What was that? He's passionate about cinema. Oh, you yeah. can't hide it.
1: So, um... For the sake of not being uh, too much of a basic guy, I'm going to say King of Comedy.
0: I love King of Comedy, but I came to that one pretty late. Uh, I remember when I watched it, it was like a head of Joker. And I know like Will and a couple oh, of, the yeah. of the show were very much like, John, you got to see it. Very yes. much your thing. Um, I, I have a soft spot for After Hours and The Color of Money. I like that yeah. whole era. Oscar Sessi. I think uh, Last, T- Last Temptation of Christ was like out right after that, I want to say. Um I want to know, though, what was the first Scorsese movie you saw in theaters? So, Will, it sounds like yours was The Aviator. No, Uh, it was Shutter Island. It was Shutter. I was going to say Shutter Island was mine because I couldn't see The Departed. I wanted to see The Departed in theaters so dang badly, but nobody would go with me. And uh, probably because of the length and also because it was R-rated. And I was like 15. So I was kind of like, I want to go see it. I want to go see it. And finally, somebody threw a bone uh, and I got to see it uh, with my brother-in-law. Like, but it was like a home viewing kind of thing. But Shutter Island, I was like, heck yeah, I'm 20 years old. Let's go. Uh, what, what about you, Mike?
2: So technically mine was Gangs of New York, but it wasn't the original release. It was mm. like, um, like a I saw it at a, like an independent theater that was just putting it on again when I was like 14.
0: Since you brought up Gangs of New York, what's the Scorsese movie you don't like? For me, it's Gangs of New York. I I, stro- I like tried to watch it twice. I got through it the first time and I was like, I don't know. And then I came back to it years later and I was like, you know what? Maybe I was just like a dumb moron. And so like I should just appreciate cinema. But I don't like that movie. But uh, do you guys have either of you have a Scorsese or like this ain't it? I mean, um, I don't really have one that I would outright never watch
2: again. I do have ones I would, uh, you know, just don't hit as hard for me. It's mm-hmm. Aviator. Um, yeah, yeah probably Aviator number one. Just think that movie kind of drags. And I, I just think, think about that movie much. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say um, ironic, considering it was probably my first one, but Aviator is the one I feel like I think about the least, or I, I don't have the desire to revisit i still like it. i mean it's a good movie um i'm not gonna say otherwise but by scorsese standards i feel it's not up there
0: yeah
2: i do want to say if if you're listening to all this and I, I think there's a lot of people who haven't dove deep into the history of scorsese especially his earlier works if you're looking for a jumping off point i, I really do think you should start with mean streets because you you're watching a guide
0: for it mike Yeah, I do have a whole guide for it. You did the Eras tour, but for Scorsese. Scorsese
2: (laughs) Eras. But Mean Streets is the best place to start because you're kind of watching Scorsese figure out his own style in real time. And I think it's just a great foundation for what you're going to see him do the rest of his career.
0: I wonder if there's like a podcast that's devoted just to Martin Scorsese. Like they do that kind of thing where they're like, okay, we're going to be completists and watch or rewatch all of his movies. I bet there is something like that. Cause it, there's like the Stephen King podcast that kind of does that for all his adaptations. There's the one um, for that Chris Evangelista did right for 21st century Spielberg. Right. So uh, I, I bet there is one I'm, I'm literally like typing it in. Mm-hmm.
2: All right, so we're eight minutes and 27 seconds into the recording, and John has already pitched an idea for another podcast.
0: <laughs> I'm not pitching a podcast. I'm looking for a podcast that already did it. <laughs> I don't see anything, but uh, I, it just might be one of those things that, like, is buried, you know? Like every Martin Scorsese movie. I, I'd have to look it up later, but anyway, we're here to talk about... His latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. And uh, I'm going to look up what number this is in his filmography. I think it's in the teens, or maybe he's made over 20 movies. you guys know?
1: It's more than that.
0: It's more than uh, that? Yeah, it's um, definitely
2: more
1: than that. I think this uh, is, like, like in the 30s, 32? Yeah. I mean, are you talking just narrative films or, like, the documentaries? Um, like, there's a lot. If just narrative. Talk, like, okay.
0: Narrative, I think. 26. I mean, 26. Okay. There's a few that I usually don't think of quickly, like Age of Innocence and all that. Um, but yeah, I had to look it up because I, I yeah, I definitely couldn't remember. Uh, but yeah, 26 movies. Uh, in terms of documentaries, I know he, that's in the teens. He's done a bunch. That, that's at least like 12 to 15, if not more. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, this is his 26th feature film, and it's an epic western crime drama, uh, which is uh, interesting for him. Uh, definitely, when I was like starting to watch it, it was kind of like, oh, you know, this is. I'm kind of getting that vibe of like when it's not a very similar movie at all to The Hateful Eight, but it was kind of reminding me of, like when Tarantino kind of went to the to the West and he started to apply his style to like a traditional western and and kind of spin it, and so we kind of have something somewhat similar here. With Scorsese, uh, this movie stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone, also Robert De Niro. It's based on a pretty popular book. In fact, a book by David Grant that's also called "Killers of the Flower Moon" it came out in 2017. A lot more people I know have read this book than I realized. Like in the lead up to this movie, like I had so many people after I watched the movie and I reviewed it and started uh, talking about it and everything. I started getting like you know people that I know, just like in real life, like you know, not like. Total cinephiles, uh, but people who like movies and were like, you know what? Hey, I read that book like a few years ago. It's awesome. Like, how does it compare? I'm like, oh shoot, I haven't read the book. Uh, but I think, um, well, did you say you read the book, did, or did I imagine that?
1: No i I was reading it like the week before it came out. Okay. I, I've had it on my shelf for a long time. Haven't read. It. I'm about halfway through it. Mike, I believe, though, has read the book.
0: Oh yeah, okay. So Mike, you you did read this book. Like, did you read it like when it like a while ago? So like, this is a book.
2: I picked this was an airport book like mm. a while ago I picked up, just looked interesting. Um, I didn't even realize it was the, the next Scorsese movie that was coming out. Um, but you know, I, I, started on the plane and I finished it that entire, like in one, basically one sitting once I was on the trip, it's so good.
0: I feel like I, I would like to go on an airport trip with you, Mike. I feel like we would have fun at the airport, probably go get drunk. Probably, you know, I'd make a few jokes like Mike overboard is now boarding. Um, yeah. Um, but
1: without getting too ahead, and I want to see if Mike agrees with this, what's fascinating about the film in comparison to the book is that it kind of works as a companion piece in the sense that like they're telling the same story, but they're telling it in a different way.
0: Yeah, the I've book, heard about this. In yeah. the
1: book, uh, like a lot of events that are detailed throughout the film are said pretty early on in the book, but it's kind of more about building the suspense and kind of mystery of it and establishing more of the FBI's role as far as solving the case in the movie without, uh, I don't know if this is too much to say too early on, but it's kind of more about, like, the insidious nature of how this happens to this county and, like, how you're seeing someone run within this very malleable person who becomes this uh, agent of chaos for this very uh, malicious personality. Yeah. Um, this this movie
0: is more of a character study from the perspective of the Osage members, uh, kind of an ensemble perspective, yeah. but mainly the Lily Gladstone character. We we haven't set it up properly yet, right? Yeah,
1: I was do the, that real quick. All right, go ahead.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, because there just might be some people listening who don't who don't know what we're talking about, right? Um, so what we're referring to is this is a real life thing that happened in the 1920s. That the book is. Uh, narrativizing. And essentially there, there's this tribe that started up in like the Missouri kind of Midwestern area too. They eventually like moved down to the Oklahoma area and they were forced onto this reservation and by the American government. But as fate would kind of have it, they struck black gold. They found oil and the Osage nation tribal members became insanely wealthy over a very short period of time. So this movie takes place in the aftermath of that in the 1920s. So this is Prohibition era, uh, fallout of World War One, And the Osage, like in this area, have like all this wealth, but they're not, they're essentially like not allowed to fully control it. So there's this uh, kind of infiltration of like the white man, uh, a lot of white men coming in and like marrying into the Osage family. And then over the course of this decade or so, a lot of people started dying. A lot of Osage members started dying mysteriously, outright murder, and a lot of their money was going to like people in the white families. And this was something that eventually got the attention of the federal government. But this movie is sort of about how long that took and also the kind of early beginnings of the FBI, because this was a case where the local government in Oklahoma just refused to do anything about this. And mainly it's it's implied because they were incentivized not to and so this movie is kind of exploring how that stuff happens the book apparently is about more of like the the FBI side of things and at least that's what i've been told whereas this movie that's there but the focus more on the Osage part of the equation. And particularly Scorsese has even said that when he was adapting the book, he changed a lot of what he originally envisioned for it. Uh, By the way, uh, he co-wrote this movie with Eric Roth and uh, they consulted a lot of the Osage people on that. And it was apparently a huge influence on why this movie does have such a different framing. And I think some people would say for the best, because uh, if it had been a direct one-to-one with the book, it likely, based on my understanding, would have struck as very disingenuous for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people like in that community, particularly. Uh, Eric Roth, by the way, extremely loud and incredibly close, uh, probably most famous for, also a curious case, Benjamin Button, uh, pretty well known writer. I think his most recent thing was, uh, what, Dune? I think I'll have to look it up. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so so that's the setup. So, sorry, well, if you had a, something else you wanted to add,
1: oh, I just wanted to say, yeah, I mean, you, you kind of lightly touched on it, but yeah, I mean, I think there are a number of factors that kind of led to the the changing of the focus of the film, but I, I think primarily it was because, um, Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, who's also a producer in the film we meeting with the Osage County wanted to make sure their perspective was more central to the narrative and that, uh, it wasn't something that was going to be disrespectful. Uh, and so I think that did kind of lead to the uh, shifting of the focus a bit. Um, but also it did kind of seem like initially, I guess, Leonardo DiCaprio, I, I could be wrong, but I remember hearing that he was, I think supposed to be Tom White, the Jesse Foreman's yeah. character. And then it was, was going to be like, like a detective thriller at first, yeah, yeah with him. Uh, and then he was just kind of like, I don't know, I'm feeling
2: more
0: this
1: earnest guy.
0: <laughs> it's, and it, honestly, I think that was the right decision because i think that this is a, a very unusual dicaprio performance for him and that's kind of for the best because it, it kind of gives dicaprio a chance to do something different and not just slide into his like comfort zone at least i think so uh this is the movie that uh technically scorsese wanted to make this before the irishman uh, he wanted to make this as soon as like 2016 i think um i all, i think almost even before the book came out yeah. there it was like a bidding war over a film adaptation of this uh the book itself i think is a nonfiction. if i'm not mistaken yeah i think uh
1: yeah i think the book came out in 2017 which is the same year that the lost city of zed came out which is also uh based on his book uh so yeah i think it was just it was just like really hot and uh yeah just a story like this does take a long time an epic doesn't form overnight
0: right. yeah and and just putting it into perspective right i mean lost city of zed was like one of our first reviews on Cinema Holics. <laughs> you know it's kind of wild to think that six years later uh we're we're just getting to this movie that he had been that had been in the works for him that he had a every intention to make you know uh so that yeah that said uh eventually irishman did come out uh, and, and all that and so now we have this movie and I think that uh, *Killers of the Flower Moon*. Uh, a lot of people are noting it for its length. Uh, it is a longer film, uh, 206 minutes. Is nowhere close to his longest movie. It's his like sixth longest movie. Uh, but you know, for Scorsese, that's you're definitely comparing to other people, right? Uh, also, a very big budget, 200 million dollars. Uh, now we are talking about this movie about a week after it, it has hit theaters. It's an Apple movie that is being distributed by Paramount Pictures. So it is going to be on Apple TV Plus through like the Apple Original Films thing. Uh, I think. Uh, That streaming date hasn't been announced yet as far as I understand, I could be wrong uh, at this point. But theatrically, the movie hasn't been a huge hit yet. It's only made $59 million so far. I think their hopes are that it's going to be released theatrically and like Oscar buzz and things like that might carry it. That said, that's probably why they're not announcing a streaming date, because they may not want to stream it until after award season, because they can put in more theaters and all that. Because, it, yeah, it's going to be a tricky movie to make its budget back and then some. Um, but because it's in that award season flavor, it's one of the frontrunners for Best Picture. It's got uh, definitely some awards consideration for the actors, especially um, uh, Lily Gladstone. Uh, it, it is one of those movies that could go the distance, uh, it's, but it's going to be a marathon, not a sprint, right? But what do we think of this movie? <laughs> um, let's let's talk about Killers of the Flower Moon. Let's review this thing. And you know, it sounds like we all are coming at it from slightly different um, perspectives and from different uh, places in terms of how much we knew about the story going into it. But we'll start with you, Mike, because you are the guest, and you have been known. Uh, I, I actually revealed this to our group chat today that Mike never lies. And that has been confirmed. So what you're about to hear are, is nothing but truth.
2: Yeah. So, you know, when I look across the screen to you, John Negroni, standing at your five foot two stature. Um, mm-hmm. No, yeah. I, I I really like this movie. Um, I, I do love... How we'll put that it's like a, a companion piece for the book. I definitely think if you want to see the movie, you should also read the book. It kind of reminds me of two thousand one, a space odyssey, in, in that regard, where like like the the, the novel and the book uh, or the novel and the Kubrick movie, they go so well together. Just gives you more details. Um, but oh, besides it being a great narrative and really interesting, crazy that all happened. I could watch three and a half hours of just De Niro and, and Leonardo DiCaprio sharing scenes. Like some, like I would say two of my f- like favorite performances this year, maybe, maybe in the past couple years, like them sharing scenes was a masterclass. I like, I, there's moments I keep coming back to, uh, I, that's still just in my brain. I keep thinking about, and then the character of Molly is just so good. and so different than you you get in, in a lot of modern movies. So, You know, if I to summarize it at all, really like this movie. One of my favorites of the year. Um, Definitely something I'll I'll go rewatch, even with the long runtime.
0: Yeah, that that uh, Lily Gladstone performance. It's it's a bit of a magic trick, right? Because it's hard to talk about this movie without giving certain things away that I wouldn't want to know going into the movie. But in terms of her character, like there's just something that's like very honest about her, sort of like. Her reactions and her interpretation of like these horrific things happening around her where there's such this there's such an amazing line between like a character being victimized, but yet having agency, but yes, also being a tragic character. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen a movie or seen a performance like really balance that. You know, so expertly. I, I think that she's just such a she's a dynamite uh, actor. I think this is uh, her second or third film this year. Uh, one of the other major ones is uh, Fancy Dance, which uh, came out of Sundance. I want to say, and I, I really enjoyed that movie. And oh, uh, what's wrong? Well, will wills raising his arms? He's shrugging. He's like, "What are you no, talking about, John?" No, That's I just not even.
1: I, I I'm sure that movie's fine. I have no uh, issues with that. It just that just sounds like a stereotypical Sundance movie. Like if there's like a parody of a Sundance movie, it'd be like
0: fancy dance or fancy pants fancy or whatever dance. You said, uh, it's, it's a it's a good movie it really is um i i, I do I'll recommend s- it but uh, yeah i, mean, I think this is it. a this is definitely a breakout year uh for her i mean she's been in plenty of good stuff I, people will probably recognize her from reservation dogs and uh, i think she was she was in first cow uh, she had uh i think yes, it's kind of a smaller uh, role in that but yeah if uh, folks folks want to see more lily gladstone they can definitely check out fancy dance
1: She's also uh, in another Kelly Reich, or, yeah, another Kelly Reichardt film, *Certain Women*. And she was in uh, an indie called *The Unknown Country*. That I believe I saw last year. It's not earlier this year. Uh, solid film, yeah, good showcase for her. Movie. As, well, yeah, yeah,
0: um, yeah. And she also uh, I, was yeah. a, a writer on that movie, wasn't she? On *Unknown I Country*.
1: Forget.
0: Uh, you might I be right. So. I don't remember off the top of my head.
1: Um, but yeah, I mean, she's, she's a, a story
0: writer. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, I just story yeah. credit.
1: Um, but yeah, she's the heart of the film here. I mean, it's it's so central and so crucial to the story uh, that Scorsese is telling here. That, like you said, that median that uh, really just kind of gives everything into central perspective. Because what was surprising about me, without giving too much away of my thoughts, uh, was that this was more of a Scorsese film than I expected. Going, into, I thought it was going to be a little bit more like Silence, where it was a departure for him stylistically, like a little, little bit more reserved and subdued. And, and it is, I mean, it, it definitely makes sense. This is coming off of the Irishman. Cause I think it's kind of doing a similar type of thing where it's more about the the consequence and morality of the story in the sense that, like, obviously something like Goodfellas shows us the rise and the fall. And, some, and you can say the same about like uh, Wolf Wall Street, but um, you kind of see more of the lingering tragedy of, of a story like this. And it's so central to having Molly be the focus because she is, like you said, the one who is not entirely a victim, not entirely, uh, you know, uh, unaware of what's happening around her, but also kept so in the dark. But also has this central kind of uh, intelligence awareness to be smarter than her husband, smart, but then also like caught in this paranoia and terror of what's going on around her. This, and also the fact she's like this median where she is part of the the old ways and also uh, of an age where she is uh, of the new ways with the the um, the rise of uh, the oil county and the way she's amassed his fortune but yeah it's a really compelling character um it's really well written um in the film and the book but yeah molly or sorry <laughs> lily gladstone um is what's central to really bringing the heart of the film
0: yeah it definitely is amazing to me to see an actor like her not just go toe-to-toe with leonardo dicaprio not just have so many one-on-one like these are two actors inhabiting the same space and they kind of are you know a lot of a lot of actors like male and female have struggled what you know when in the presence of like a dicaprio performance which can kind of swallow the room sometimes in a bad way Uh, but she is like not just up for the challenge i think that you can see like She's just a, a an actor who can not just hold her own against him, but also kind of like spark even more nuance from him and vice versa. It, it really is like a it's it's sort of force. And then I, I I definitely like to think of like the typical Scorsese movie when I when I think of directors who are so great at making movies with unlikable characters, I think of Scorsese and like the Coen Brothers. And I actually was a little bit surprised by how much Coen Brother you know, I was getting from this movie in terms of like some of the comedy, but also like the haphazard nature of like bad people doing bad things. There's also something in here too, that, you know, for anybody who might look at this and say, well, you know, I've seen this kind of movie before from Scorsese, like, what does this movie kind of do? That's a little bit different. And I'm not, I'm not going to say it's totally different, but if you've ever watched his movies and you see people like in the mafia in his movies, and you see that kind of like guilt that like builds up over decades and you kind of see that the characters who do bad things but like the conflict is that it awards them a certain lifestyle and they, and they kind of relish it and have fun with it think of joe pesci think of ray liotta um think of like casino for sure is one of those movies uh not just good fellas but then in this movie there's like this just nice friendly approach like this sort of callous like one person will just be like oh yeah this person's my best friend they're gonna have to die. And it's just like, it's so sinister. But what's sinister about it is it has that like, kind of Southern bless your heart, polite to your face, but really deep down, like you are not worth anything to this human being. And I think what he's doing with this movie and bringing that out, I think it's gonna be like kind of, it's gonna rub people the wrong way in a good way. (laughs) Like, I think it's gonna make people kind of like open their eyes a little bit to, you know, the history. Uh, of america is filled with this like filled with sort of like former friends just like you know and murder and tragedy among people who i thought this person supported me i thought this person cared about me but there's just this like smile you know holding the knife a bit and so i think this movie kind of captures one of the most important history lessons uh that that can be had from that kind of thing um yeah What, what did you think mike
2: that's what really got me. First, The first time you read the book, just how the narrative structure is, is set up, it's like you are in the investigation yourself. Like the first half of the book is is all these things are happening, and it's kind of like a whirlwind. You're caught off guard. You're like, how are all these things happening? And then about halfway through the book, like the the other shoe is dropped, and you know who's behind it all, and it's really shocking because it does seem like it's your best friend doing it. Where the movie... Kind of starts from the beginning, like you like you mentioned. It's straight to your face. Like within the first ten minutes, you know who the bad guys are. But it's it's but the way Scorsese does his characterization is like they aren't portrayed as these like overly evil like antagonists. No, it's just like you're, you're watching. Well, who you think are these protagonists? And all of a sudden, they're just like talking about how they're going to do bad things very casually. Like, yeah, yeah. well. these savages they're gonna have to die anyway so we might as well make good business out of it and it it just it just hits you in the face and it's just to your face and it's so unexpected and it just really that's what the movie hinges on as a a viewing experience as a narrative structure and it's you know it's very good i think it's very effective
0: now oh yeah go ahead well i was gonna tee you up anyway
1: Okay. Uh, I was going to say that, like, I mean, that's what's so intriguing about uh, how Ernest is portrayed here is that he's just this very, uh, I think I used the word already, but malleable personality. Like, he's not someone who is inherently evil. He's just this sort of wholly neutral, admittedly very dumb, but wholly neutral. He doesn't have integrity.
0: He doesn't have, like, a code, so, like, it can kind of just change, right? I mean, he's literally gutless in this film. (laughs)
1: Like, he's like, he's someone who has, like, no, uh, Pushback or any desire to like do anything other than make money and and be rich or whatever. Yeah,
0: and and Will's referencing kind of like a funny joke in the movie where he literally like has a war injury where he was shot in the gut, (laughs) and so that's what you know. It's like there are like so many like little moments in that where you can see Scorsese is just like, yeah, okay, like that's what I'm doing, and go ahead, you can laugh, it's fine.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a ton of dark comedy in here, especially in the second half when like the FBI really comes in and like fingers are being pointed elsewhere. Uh, That stuff is generally pretty funny. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think what also makes it intriguing though, is that uh, Ernest is not like, uh, like he genuinely cares for Molly. Like it's not like some sort of like calculated play for him. He really falls in love with this woman. He has very uh, at times simple and at times complicated relationship with her. Where there is genuine care, there's genuine love there, but this overseeing force uh, from uh Hale would just kind of kind of looms over him and prevents him from really following through with what his heart would want well, it's a movie be about, like yeah.
0: yeah, it's a movie about the literal and metaphorical poisoning of relationships. Yeah. You know, it, it uses that as a technique to sell that idea, to sell that like that danger, right?
2: But it's also like did he actually love Molly? I think the movie leaves it like really open-ended and, and into the interpretation of like, what is love? Did it start as love? At what point does it not become love? Or was it ever love in the first place? Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm completely ripping this from a, a letterbox interview that Scorsese does. But there's a big influence in, in both him and Leonardo's portrayal of Ernest. Of um, I'm going to blank on the movie's name, but a movie from the forties that is essentially about the same thing of a man, you know, being in love with a woman who has a lot of money and the whole time in the movie, it's open-ended like, does he want the money or does he actually love her? And I think they, they let the audience try to interpret that. And I think it's, you know, one of those things are at certain times, I think they portrayed it as love. And at certain times they portrayed it as taken advantage of. And, you know, is
1: that just how life is? Well, I think it's, it's a matter of, he loves three things. He loves Molly. He loves his uncle and he loves money. And it's just like this conflicting factor of like, who does, who or what does he love more? And like, because he's just someone who's very kind of like uh, impressionable and very easy to kind of follow, like not like a thought through process, but rather just how can I make the person in front of me happy or like whatever, it just kind of becomes, it's kind of fascinating, but sad and really funny like journey for this guy. Uh and yeah, I mean it just kind of makes for a really uh very scorsese but also just also very innately tragic story. Um but uh I was just looking up I I know um these were the films that Scorsese, I think in that interview said he was inspired by you can tell me which one you're referring to, Mike. It was The Harris, The Last of the Line, The Lady of the Dugout, Blood of the Moon, Red River, and Wild River. It's the Harris. Dears?
2: okay, But I, if I also jump to it, I don't know if I'm getting off, off track of what you want to talk about, John, but psychologically I want to talk
0: about you, Mike, I want to talk about you all the time.
2: Well, here's what I want to talk about. Psychologically. I think Leonardo DiCaprio is the best person to have played Ernest, like from the audience perspective, because I feel like he's, you know, one of our last movie stars, people love Leonardo DiCaprio, especially if you're under the age of 25 and a <laughs> woman. Uh no that's a joke but it, it kind of makes the audience a little bit more culpable into Ernest's acts because you know you start with you start with Leonardo DiCaprio you're so used to him being you know your main guy you know he's the sweet little Leo from Forever ago.
0: just seeing him be conf- like confident competent and charming he's none of those things in this
2: exactly and it's just it's all these things you expect from him and then you just see him be weak the whole movie but like you're kind of along for the ride and you like. You're seeing it through his perspective. and I just think that oh, was a really smart thing for Martin Scorsese to do. I don't know if it was his call or whose call it was to make the switch from him being Tom White to being Ernest, but it's another thing that just makes the movie work so well because of the audience's relationship with who Leonardo DiCaprio is, and then also the treatment of, like I think, Americans being passive in their responsibility for all the tragedies and horrors that have happened to the indigenous people throughout the
1: course of this, this nation. Yeah, and this general sense of white people feeling entitled to what the Native Americans have. And that's really detailed uh, vividly and infuriatingly throughout the book. But, like, just this kind of sense of, like, this is innately theirs. This is, like, what they own. And then even when they're kind of cast asunder, uh, they uh, fall upon this great fortune. Like, it's kind of, like, uh, almost incidental. And then, like, Americans just continue to try to, like, infiltrate themselves into that and try to take from them, like you said, like, use very uh, arbitrary kind of laws to, like, prevent them from spending too much money or being too wealthy. Uh, and, yeah, just... Uh, in, in, in the book, I feel it's more... Uh, it's uh, angering and just more infuriating, and, and I feel like in the movie, it's more heartbreaking. You're just kind of watching the desolation and mm-hmm. uh, Not in real time, but, like, in, in a closer approximation to what it'd be like historically. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's it's fascinating both ways, but like I said, I think that's what makes such an intriguing parallel. If you if you watch the film or read the book or vice versa. Um, yeah, definitely agree. The
2: laws were infuriating, just like for context. Again, this is happening a hundred years ago. Like this is two generations away, you know, like, and first off, the, we already covered the, or the, the, the uh, Osage people couldn't have access to their own money it had, because they were too savage to be trusted with it. So right. an arbitrary white person with power would be assigned to assign them money. They had to go ask for it. But what's even crazier is that they like, if the U.S. government w- like wanted to, they wouldn't even let them have all the oil money. The only reason that happened is that when the Osage were displaced, and the book covers this, they were one of the few tribes to enter into contractual agreement with the U.S. government that the new land that they had in Oklahoma that nobody else wanted, like, was theirs. Um, and they, like, they were entitled to it. They were one of the first tribes, one of the few tribes at the time, to be doing that after so many people were displaced. And then it was 10 years later they find the oil. So that's why, like, they, they, the, and the government tried to fight them on it and take them away. So first off, they didn't want to have it in the first place. But then I think a really important piece of context, too, Is that local, like the police didn't exist, especially as we know it. Essentially, in those small times and small towns, there wasn't enough infrastructure to have like laws and the police. That's why, you know, King Bill Hale is the deputy sheriff. Because what would happen when a crime would take place, especially like a murder, the local townspeople would get together and they would just vote people to investigate the crime. Like yeah. literally they get in a circle and they go, okay, who wants to do – oh, you want to do the autopsy? Okay, you, like people would volunteer for it. So it made it even easier to take advantage of the system and commit these crimes against these people to, to steal their money. So there's so much uh, – and that's the part of the book that really gets me. And it, it it's it's crazy that this is a true story. Like this happened, right? Because I – did any of you know about it before the movie or the book? Because I, I didn't. I never learned about this. I mean –
1: only in general terms, but yeah, not not to the gr- degree that's covered in the book, and not covered in the film.
0: Yeah, I think the um for me was was kind of hard. Like, I, I I actually kind of like how they incorporate like scenes where it's just showing the Osage people, kind of just talking about this with each other. You know, like, and you have some of the like white, you know neighbors whatever in the room but they're the ones running the show on it and that's something that i felt was like really necessary to just get like they're venting off the situation. I also really want to point out a couple of the other performers here because if there was something, if there was something I wanted more from the movie, it was some of the other Osage characters yeah. who do kind of come in and out. But particularly like Tantu Cardinal, Kara Jade Myers, um, they play uh, Molly's mother and sister, and they each have like time on screen to be sure. Uh, there's also um, a character who comes in. Um, I forget the actor's name, but he comes in and he's kind of like this. Uh, He's like one of the best friends of King, and he likes, you know, starts up this like friendship with somebody who's like basically plotting to hurt him. Um, This uh, character who also kind of comes in and out of the movie. And I just thought, like, those perspectives are so interesting and so tragic and so just, like, watching them having to, like, reckon with the death happening around them and this sort of, like, dread that it's going to happen to them. Like, that's where I was like, man, this is where the movie is, like, working at its most for me. Mm -hmm. But it also felt a little fleeting. And I think that was kind of the point, like, that unrealized potential uh, of those characters is kind of what I'm supposed to be feeling.
1: Yeah. I mean, I do think uh, I'm in agreement that, uh, sadly, I think one of my bigger complaints that I do— End up wanting to see more of the osage perspective in both the book and the film
0: there's some of the best parts of the movie like when yes. they're just sitting around talking to each other like molly and her sisters i'm like this is so great but then we sh- keep shifting away to other characters that i i like but i i like even though they're unlikable
1: yeah but um to the earlier point mike i do want to say uh for one i do really love the cold open of the film which i think yeah. really uh details like what you're talking about in a very cinematic, but also just really impactful and uh, contrite kind of way, or concise, I mean, concise sort of way. Um, But also I just like that Scorsese, uh, and I'll also credit, obviously, Eric Roth as a co-screenwriter, is really good about detailing information, like into the dialogue and into scenes without feeling too exposition heavy and making the conversations feel at least natural to the moment. Like it doesn't feel like we're just like, getting facts. Like the, the closest we get to that is when like Leonardo DiCaprio's character Ernest is like reading from this like book, like kids' book or something like that's the closest we get to like an expository scene, uh, in a, in a more traditional sort of way. Um, but even that's like still compelling. There's something kind of haunting and, uh, mystic about it. But, uh, yeah, as far as the, um, uh, what you're saying, John, the supporting cast, there are just so many, uh, broadly speaking, just so many great faces in this movie like there's just so many people I just like I just love looking at your face because you're not like a traditional movie it's like so many great character actors mm-hmm. and have just so many wonderful faces in this film Um but one actor and one face I really want to highlight is Ty Mitchell who plays uh John Ramsey who is probably if not my favorite certainly one of my three top three favorite characters in the movie because I think he's like so tragic but also just so funny in this movie just kind of being this like low level guy who's just kind of like forced into doing a lot of the, like, henchmen stuff. And then just, yeah. like, kind of, like, kind of just, like, thrown, you know, back and forth, just kind of, like,
2: street like, Ruttler. nothing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, his expressions, his delivery, uh, his his just general posture is just so wonderful. And I, every time he came on screen, I thought, you know, it was sad, but also a hoot.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that.
2: If we're talking about supporting su- supporting performances, should we touch on one of the... Biggest pieces of controversy to come out of this film?
0: The inclusion sure. of Will Ashton's car in the background yeah, of yeah, several yeah. scenes.
1: It is old enough to qualify.
0: <laughs> Brendan Fraser. Did we like him? I was going to bring him up uh, because so I have a few. Uh, I scoured Letterboxd for some of the more interesting reviews across the, the rating spectrum. And I have to bring up one common denominator among a f- quite a few of the ones that were, if not negative, kind of middling with it. They mm. all mentioned Brendan Fraser, not in a bad way. But in a sort of like, not enough Brendan Fraser, but he really sells his like, one or two scenes. There's- <laughs> two months! <laughs> Literally, like, Mike's audio like, fell apart while he was trying <sighs> to mimic the Brendan Fraser performance. Um, uh, I, I love, like, and that was another thing where it's like, when Brendan Fraser came on, I was like, this man, he's back. He's so back
1: says the guy who didn't like the whale.
0: Yeah, because that was a movie that uh, let him down, let me down, let everybody down, I think. That's okay, because it gave him the profile he needs to do better things.
2: I think his his comeback started before that, in that straight-to-HBO...
0: Oh, yeah, No Sudden Move. Yeah, we talked about that on the show. Yeah, I think if you liked that movie, you're probably going to like The Killer, the new David Fincher. Oh,
1: yeah. Um, I will say, I mean, I was really, really happy... That he was in the film, uh, performance-wise, I like it overall. I was a little mixed on it when I saw the film. Um, like, I love his court scene. I don't want to give away the details, but just the whole way that scene was shot, and then just his kind of like, uh, yeah, like what uh, Mike it's was doing there. It's it's fantastic. It's, it's,
0: it's almost my favorite part of the entire movie. I think up, up to that point in the movie, I was getting a little sleepy. I'm not going to mm. lie to you. He woke me up. It's like, oh, Brendan, hey, there you are.
1: I think his later scene—I I didn't quite buy it, but I also get that like there are like three layers to character. It's like Brendan Fraser playing a guy who's playing a guy, like a lawyer. It's like a Saul Goodman sort of thing. That's why like, I he's like yeah,
0: yeah, the showman version, but then sure. where he's like a little bit more of like, what is the matter with you? I was yeah. just like, oh, I, I know Boy? who this guy is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and he's honestly, it's really good to be opposite John Lithgow as like the more mm. reserved and yeah. you know for the state kind of guy i
0: just i just can't believe he couldn't you know he had to go up against Farquad. that's a tough uh that's a tough competition in the court um i have a bunch of reviews and uh more than usual and they cover some stuff that we haven't gone over and that i want to get y'all's read on as we kind of wind this thing down so uh i have a couple of like negative reviews and, it, and i gotta say it was hard to find negative reviews. It was hard to find middling reviews because what I kept finding was like reviews that would be like, oh, three stars, two and a half. Then you read it and be like, this is a masterpiece. I'm like, what is happening? I don't understand this. It'd be like, wow, Marty still got it. Two and a half. I'm like, what the
1: hell? Well, John, you got to realize Martin Scorsese is now on Letterboxd. So all these people, especially all these Zoomers, they don't want to disrespect hide. their elders. They no, just no. want to be like, oh, okay, he right. can look at it now.
0: Well, there, there are a few people who didn't respect their efforts. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'll, I'll read, I have a couple here. I'll start with the one star, uh, the 1.5 star. And it was one of the, I think it was the only one or 1. 1.5 star review I could find. That wasn't just like a weird joke, but it was actually like trying to say something negative that, but that said, it's only like two sentences, but here we go. Uh, this is from Tristan Moylan, uh, 1.5 stars. The cinematography was good and directed beautifully, but it was so long and dragged out. I felt bored and tired the entire time. This movie was not for me. Um, we talked about the length a bit. I, I got to be honest, guys. This is a three and a half hour movie, 206 minutes. To me, it felt like two and a half. I, I didn't really feel it was yeah. over three. Um, I did feel it was long. Right. I'm not going to lie, but it, I don't know. I didn't I didn't feel like Avengers Endgame long with this. Yeah, I
1: mean, this is, once again, film a shoemaker. Uh, I mean... I don't know how much more I need to say about how great she is, especially Martin Scorsese, but mm-hmm. immaculate edit this film is, uh, you know, it just, it's extremely well edited in terms of pacing, in terms of scene composition bounce. Yeah. It just, I, I would, you know, as many Oscars I'm sure she has, I'd be very happy. if She wins another for editing this film. She did a fantastic job.
2: I think the the reason it is done so well and doesn't feel like, you know, you bring up, not to bring up Scorsese versus Marvel, you know, controversy as well, but you know, those movies that seem like forever long, it's because they have these predictable three acts rise, fall, heroes are going to fail. They're going to come together. They're going to win. And uh, like this movie doesn't, it's just, it's just beginning to end this like unpredictable, like non-traditional, great narrative arc of a movie that it, yeah. does it it's just more goes- like reading
0: a book mm-hmm. right where like a book you can read a few pages and like years pass and that's kind of the sensation you get with this i think you're totally right mike and i think you too will and i think part of like yeah why that works and why the editing works the way it does is because the movie doesn't overwhelm you with sensory details Like it it doesn't have like huge, massive set pieces that like activate something in your brain over and over again and wear you out. It doesn't like the soundtrack is really understated. Like it's so careful and meticulous about guiding you along and kind of, you know, like a good DJ, like keeps the the thing pumping, but knows when to take breaks, knows when to let you settle in, knows when to like shift gears a little bit. So you don't feel like, "Mm, this is feeling dragged out to me. Now that might not be the case for everybody because- not everybody can feel that same thing, but I do think that this is a really great case, and being able to realize that for the most people possible with this kind of subject material, and that's why I'm pretty impressed.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely worth highlighting uh, the final score from the late Robbie Robertson, uh, wonderfully understated or you know understated score uh, here. And uh, I do want to correct and say these are a ma- these are massive sets, like <laughs> don't like undersell them, but like they're not like flashy as you're saying. Yeah, they're not like oh, look at this. It's more like you're getting integrated into this world. And something I found incredible is like, when I'm reading the book, there are several pictures throughout, and I look at them, it's like, oh, like, oh shoot, like that looks exactly like, like yeah. the pivotal house. I don't want to give away what happens, but there's a pivotal house in this movie looks to the T exactly in real life as it does in the film. Like They did an incredible job with that.
0: And and there's something to how like the sets and like I was talking more about the set pieces. So like the action and sort of like the dial, like some of the you know, heavy conversations and things like that, but also I'm glad you bring up the sets because there, I actually think there's something almost kind of dull and gaudy about a lot of it. And like, there's such a contrast between when you actually go to see like an Osage wedding and when you see their culture and it's it's vibrant, it's vivid, it's full of life, but you kind of see the sort of soul sucking, you know, uh, like Fairfax kind of like, we got to bring in, you know, all of the, you know, We have to bring in all the sort of like manufactured, like American dream stuff because this is really what success is. And then it's like it's such an easy contrast to make, but it's it's still pretty subtle about it. And I like that Scorsese, like uh, so his uh, cinematographer here is uh, Rodrigo Prieto, and I really like that he doesn't spend like ten minutes, you know, just like showing us a big vista, you Mm -hmm. know, and being like, "We're in Oklahoma, baby," and you're about to spend five minutes gawking at clouds we don't have to do that like like that's not this movie that's not why this movie is here there's no sort of like flexing or trying to win cinematography awards for those reasons it's just kind of jaw dropping for more interesting reasons i think uh and prieto has done movies for alejandro uh, gonzalez anaya too and we've seen him be able to do this sort of thing in that kind of movie. But we've seen him do things like Brokeback Mountain. So it's like, I, I kind of like that uh, this movie finds such a better balance for that that kind of uh, approach. To the he videos.
1: had a uh, big year because he also shot Barbie.
0: Yeah, and uh, Barbie one, probably is going to win Best Production Design if, if it hasn't already.
2: I just want to call out one, I think, impressive technical shot. Uh, in the Burkhart house, when, uh, or I guess actually it would be in the Molly's house before it's the Burkharts' house, but when uh, it's spanning the bottom of the house, when there's a fight happening between Ernest's brother and Molly's oh, the sister, Warner? the Warner, mm. and it's it's uh you know it's one of those things where I like how you put it, you know it's it's not for flashy sake, it's it feels like there's a reason they break out that technical style than comparing to all the other choices of shot, it felt intentional right. and it really worked and it was done very well
0: because the point is there's no pause to this it's happening all the time and it's just sort of like a constant like you're moving through the house like you're moving through the years and it's just it's not the most original trick or anything like that but it's just effective plain effective it's kind of like the
2: cover cabana shot if i'm gonna reference other scorsese
0: Yeah, and it, it's it's pulling off it's the same technique, but it pulls off a completely different emotional, you know, resonance, which is just that's what you want from a director who knows what they're good at and like wants to deliver something they know that their fans will like, but you know, it's going to also help them engage with something a little different.
1: I would say, since we've been talking uh so much about Scorsese's filmography, I do want to say, and I won't spoil them, but there are several uh callbacks to other Scorsese films in terms of shot composition. Like, there's one in uh, the um, scene when he's, when uh, Aris is driving the truck, That's a direct call back to the Taxi Driver. There's a court scene that has the same exact shot composition as the scene in Goodfellas. Like, it's very, like, it's, if you're a Scorsese fan and you've kept up with his filmography as someone like Mike has, it's a lot, there's a lot of fun little, like, Easter eggs there.
2: Yeah, the last one
1: is De Niro looking at him, you know, what do I look like, the king of comedy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a little bit more blunt, but exactly, yeah.
0: We're we're joking. In case you have not seen the movie, uh, okay. So this is uh, this is from Kylo. Kylo gave it two and a half stars. Uh, After the Oscar shine wore off, not sure what that means, I realized I don't like this movie. The acting was great as expected. Leonardo DiCaprio especially. So was the cinematography. I think Martin Scorsese is out here trying to compete with Ridley Scott to make the longest, most boring movies in their old age though. So maybe people were sighing in the cinema as this never seemed to end. I felt the exact same way. It was nice to see Brendan Fraser pop up, though even if it was only for a short time. Yeah, you know, uh, I I just think that we can't we can't argue with that. If if that's if that's your reaction, if you're sitting there and it, the movie is just not something you're engaging with, and yeah, it's gonna feel super long. Um, and it, it, it's a shame. I, I, I you know, I don't know this person. I don't know sort of like their background and if they've had similar experiences with other movies. I guess it sounds like Dune is probably what they're referencing. Um, yeah, I we can at least agree. Uh... The Brendan Fraser stuff was nice
1: i really don't generally sorry mike i was just gonna say i really generally don't get why people are complaining about the length of this one compared to like like we just got avatar the way of water which is also mm. like nearly three and a half hours we have
0: but we don't know if this person complained about that too right
1: i don't know oppenheimer, I just, long yeah no. oppenheimer and we just have this taylor swift movie that came out it's like three hours long like we're in the time of three hour movies are doing really well like why is this one garnering the complaints
2: and what I was gonna bring up is I think a lot of people I don't know, they just don't have the attention spans. Which it's okay. I'm not gonna comment on any of that or you know, I'm not making fun of all these iPad kids. But the thing I see a lot of people doing when they don't like the time is they refer to Scorsese as being self-indulgent. And my question for those people are what what is he indulging? Like what mm, like mm. do people I don't I think that's a term that gets thrown a lot. And people don't actually understand what the term means. Like, sure. This it's is pretentious. The, the furthest thing from self-indulgent. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: I mean, there are movies I dislike that I wouldn't say are self-indulgent. Just because I don't like them. Uh, like Vox uh, Lux. I don't like that movie. But I wouldn't say, you know, Brady, what's his name, was being self-indulgent. Brady I Corbett. Just, yeah, there you go. Love that movie. Yeah, yeah. And honest, honestly, there are times when I want a director to be self-indulgent. Because... They're probably good at that. I don't know.
1: Again, like, I mean, that also goes back to another three hour film this year, I was afraid. I want filmmakers to be, at least in some respects, self indulgent. It's a filmmaker's medium. Like, no one complains when, like, I don't know, like, someone writes a thousand page book like Stephen King. Like, you're not like, oh, that's indulgent. Like, you know, it's like.
0: Exactly. Well, it's the angel thing. It's like, (laughs) it's a criticism if it doesn't work, it's praise if it does.
2: It's Scorsese. Uh, I would watch a nine hour movie. If you want to watch a long Scorsese project watch my voyage to italy it's almost five hours long and it's just the dude talking about how much he loves cinema
0: i was yeah. gonna say how much he loves italy <laughs> I was like, well,
2: it, is, italian is. cinema uh, like, this isn't max landis like it's like true. okay to watch a long movie he's artistic and i'm sorry i cursed i forget this is the family podcast
0: never mind uh, mad men man but if you want the cursing you can definitely check that out it's on apple podcast wherever you get your podcasts
1: anyway uh all four more three-hour movies and stuff especially all four three-hour movies that like, turn into court dramas as the case of oppenheimer <laughs> and now killers of the flagman
0: and and detroit where oh okay oh yeah yeah well
1: detroit wasn't three hours i don't think
0: no no it's like two um okay so but it was like uh did turn into a courtroom thing um okay i have a couple of three-star reviews so these ones are going to be a little bit more like all right let's talk about it uh this is harley Quinabi. Give it three stars. You know how sometimes your friend is seeing a new guy and he's awful. You try to be nice. You say stuff like he has nice hair. Yeah. Killers of the Flower Moon has nice cinematography and the actors all do a great job. I do like that opening. It's more Terrence Malick than Martin Scorsese. I felt like a hostage during this. Possibly the most lifeless film from Marty yet, despite Lily Gladstone doing the most she can. DiCaprio is getting praised for this one, and I'm baffled. Yes, it's impressive he plays such a mumbling simpleton well, but he has only one standout scene that's completely unearned because we never actually see him care about. Uh, And I won't give that away. And saying De Niro is the best since the 90s here, to be fair, how many times in the last 20 years he tried to give a great performance? He was much better and had more to do in Silver Linings Playbook. And yes, even The Intern. I actually almost kind of agree with that. Uh, But that's because I just love The Intern. Uh, The script doesn't explore the characters nor the issues portrayed on screen. The execution is merely fine, forgettable, and too long. This shouldn't come anywhere near Oscars. Killian, I hope you have your speech ready. Uh, I disagree with almost all of this. And uh, again, though, I, if there is a performance where I'm like, I like De Niro in this movie, I don't think he's the best thing about this movie. I, and I don't think he's trying to be. I kind of appreciate that about him. Like, he has a few good scenes, but he wasn't the character who I that really stuck with me the most. But I never felt wanting in that respect, if that makes sense. But yeah, everything else here, I, I don't know referring calling this movie more terrence malick i would say like you have not watched terrence malick because that is just that i, I that is just objectively wrong yeah what like, is I, this
1: uh, is this like a john negroni review or something knocking well, terrence no, I mean, malick
0: i i don't see any terrence malick in this at least not not in a way that you could say more terrence malick than martin scorsese like that i to mean me is just that's nonsense
1: in the sense that it takes place in fields at some point <laughs> that's like the only <laughs> thing that like
0: malick-esque there's like a couple moments where it's a little dreamy, I guess, but like sure. not like that's I don't know that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of Malik. I think
1: uh, I'm definitely more favorable on De Niro. It sounds like than you. Um, I, I think it was reasonable. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, just in the sense of like I, I thought he was really, really good in this. Um, just, I, I mean, I think I prefer the Irishman's performance only because that's just his showcase for him. Yeah, I think he it's such a transformative performance from him, but. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I still think, you know, when he works at Scorsese, he's still doing great stuff. I mean, it just makes it more infuriating or sad when he does, like, something like this or The Irishman. And then he goes to do, like, About My Father or, like, some movie that I – it's so forgettable I can't even remember. Like, it's just, like, he'll just do tremendous, you know, uh, towering work and then just the most forgettable movie you've ever seen. I
2: am a staunch – Robert De Niro fan. I think he has the the best acting credits of anyone in modern history. Like, if I was going to pick one person's career, I would choose Robert De Niro because he was able to do things... That like even um, if you want to compare him to like Al Pacino, Al Pacino, tried to make this jump to being an older comedy guy. And he just became a caricature that people make fun of. De Niro does it and he does it well. He does Dirty Grandpa he... and
0: people are like. Dirty
1: Grandpa, sure. Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> exactly. Uh, meet, well, the, meet the well, Fockers, Little Fockers. Meet,
0: well, he, meet the Parents <laughs> is actually a really great uh, proof of what you're saying, Mike. Like he made that transition. Like that movie is very iconic for a lot of people.
2: I got nipples, Greg. Do you want to milk me? He's so good. And the thing about De Niro, and especially in this movie, is that he is so iconic. Everyone does a dumb De Niro impression. Everybody knows who he is. Everyone seen him in other things. And he shows up on your screen, and you don't go, oh, here we go, we're getting a Robert De Niro. Like, you don't go as Robert... You're, he became King Hale. Like, you believed who he was, and I can't get into a ton of stuff without, you know, spoiling the movie for those who haven't seen it, so I won't, but I will say... It is, I think, his best performance in years because he just portrays this real person so well and so masterfully. I I said at the beginning, I would just rewatch this movie just for his scenes alone. I really loved him.
0: That's pretty fair. That's pretty fair. Uh, In in terms of the criticism against DiCaprio, I feel like we already covered what we like about DiCaprio's performance. So yeah, just a fundamental disagreement. I, I just think that like, he does play a mumbling simpleton well, and I yeah. think that uh, I don't know. I think I think this person maybe the way they see a good performance is a sort of showy like you know, emotional. But to me, what I like is the more understated stuff. It's the the yeah. way he treats his wife, the way that like, like Mike, what you were referencing earlier, the way like you sometimes it's hard to tell, like what is his true motivation, but also the way Willie said, like the way he's easily manipulated and his the way his lust for greed just makes him like a worm, but also a worm that you kind of want to follow along to see what happens next with him. And I think that's what's so to, uh, compelling, at least to me uh, with his character.
2: If you think this movie is lifeless, I would challenge your own ability to interpret understated and uh, tonal emphasis in, in
0: movies. Um, I don't know. I don't think that that's... I, I think that if you find a movie lifeless, I just think it just doesn't work for you. And you you like certain things about movies that are different from, I guess, us and, and other people. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. I, I think the only thing there that I was just a little bit like, that's objectively not true, is the Terrence Malick thing. But I don't know. Like, it, sometimes movies, that I, it, it just... You can't, there's no accounting, you know, for like, if a movie just hits you that way. Um, but who knows? I felt that way about movies people have been like, what are you talking about, John? Like, you just don't get it. And you know, there's nothing I can do about that. Um, and the other way around, um, I have another three star here. So this is from Fuji four, five, six, Brendan Fraser is about to win back to back Oscars for this performance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I applaud Martin Scorsese for putting his heart and soul into this project and raising the awareness that it required since this movie is so vital to our world. Three-hour movies are gradually becoming the standard in our world. While it's true that certain films need three hours to fully portray their stories, others don't. Colors of the Fire Moon seem to last forever at the theater, in my opinion. Due to length, I can never see myself viewing this movie again. Let me just add that this movie had amazing performances. Lily Gladstone will undoubtedly receive an Oscar nomination, and Leo and De Niro are an excellent acting team. I can see why this movie will appeal to such a large audience. The final moment was so beautifully done. I also, I think the movie, the ending was fantastic. I love the ending of this movie, particularly like both parts of the ending. There's like a, we won't give it away, but like right before the ending ending and then the ending itself was just incredible like uh, one of my favorite movie endings of the year easily um and yeah I, I gotta say this is an interesting one in the sense of like did this movie need to be three hours i think we would probably agree that like we would have been fine with it being longer <laughs> um, but uh, i don't want to speak for you guys yeah definitely okay with, with
2: the length of it um absolutely love the ending and uh e- even though i couldn't stop thinking about mad men for a little bit with you know lucky strike Um uh, oh, that's right yeah yeah but um, that's why that's a real reason we invited you on Mike. There, Mike. the the ending i think is like there's like so many layers to it, it the right before and the end of it like yeah. with the power of the fbi and you know propaganda and oh, i just it's great it's great
0: Love the way it. we tell stories you know we did not yeah. mention the the way the movie invokes the tulsa massacre but mm-hmm. it i you know you can kind of liken the way the ending sort of like you know, as a commentary on the way that we remember history. <laughs> um, and I think that's why this movie kind of pays close attention to Tulsa, uh, since that was happening around the same time. But uh, you were yeah. going
1: to say, "Well, I was just say, I mean, in addition to what you're saying, I, I also just love that it's like this kind of acknowledgement of the limitations of the film. Like, even though it is this big grand epic, it can only be so much and, you know, so mm-hmm. authentic. And also just uh, kind of a pretty damning commentary on just the state of true crime as a genre right now. Uh, oh, yeah. I saw. oh, Oh, you, know. you mean?
0: Oh, I see what you're saying. Never mind. We can't be super specific. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and then uh, just a, we'll end it out here with a couple of positive reviews. Super positive. Uh, so this is a four point five from Ryan kind of blown away. Lots to take in. Loved all the little details that made it feel so immersed in the period. De Niro's performance is the most evil thing I've ever seen. Just horrible. He's so great. Lily Gladstone is an actual revelation. She's outstanding. DiCaprio is a horrible little worm. So many great character actors have pop up. Brendan Fraser going at 10,000 miles per hour is hilarious. Brutally honest about the horrors of colonialism, the insidious nature of racism, and how many people are complicit in it every day beyond the obvious evil ones. Absolutely needs a rewatch just to take it all in. Do you guys plan to rewatch i I think we uh, mike you already said that you want to rewatch it i very much want to rewatch it but uh in a theater though that's the question or do you want to kind of wait until you can sit with it at home
1: well i want to finish reading the book and then revisit uh,
0: oh that you know what that's a pretty good idea i wonder if i should do that uh, the same thing because i would like to kind of sandwich that way as well yeah
2: go movie book movie because you'll you'll watch it in completely different way the second time i guarantee you
0: Nice. Yeah, that's that's a really good idea. Um, but yeah, since you already read the book, Mike, you can just go back out and watch it whenever you want. Um, okay, and then uh, last review here, and then we'll finish out the Rotten Tomatoes game. Okay, uh, this is a 4.5 from the Oh Husby. This is up there with Taxi Driver. It's the most poignant of Scorsese's films that I've seen. I really enjoyed it in the I'm glad I saw this movie since. There's a critique that this movie is told almost entirely from the perspective of white men. And while this is definitely true, the perspective was still interesting because of the frankness with which it depicts these men and their motivations. Ernest is conspicuously stupid to the extent that you wonder if something is going on with him. The same is true for most of his associates. They succeed as long as they do only because their whole community is complicit. Their mindset is one that can only really exist when someone doesn't see another person as being human even though i already understood in principle that this is how the u.s and canada came to be it's shocking to see it rendered on film yeah you know i i labeled like the headline for my review of this was a history lesson with the view and i think that it is a history lesson because it it, it has all these insightful um important mirrors on our reality the way that like the way racism functions it functions it's systemic and it runs on a permission structure a community mindset that allows it to like flourish and incentivizes people to keep it going even if they personally individually think that they are not a racist evil person until they get to the point where they show that monstrous side of themselves in a way that is just impossible to ignore and this movie i think is a really good diatribe on that and so i think that's why like some people are arguing like yeah it's not fully from the perspective of the osage which is a limitation but it is accomplishing something by doing that in its own way and of course people can agree and disagree on whether or not that's a good or a bad thing
2: Yeah, I think, you know, ultimately, who this movie is for is, you know, is people who have been complicit in that system and continue to be for different types of of racism, not just towards indigenous people. But, you know, I think if it's if it was told from the Osage perspective, obviously, it would be a great movie as well. But also, I think people would miss the message a little bit easier, right? They would... uh, they would murder themselves with the Osage people and be like, see, this is what's happening to us too. Or, you know, I think the the best way to get that point across was through the eyes of the perpetrators of, uh, people who weren't so overtly evil, but just regular old people doing evil things.
0: It's an interesting point. I'll, I'll really have to chew on that one. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, any last thoughts from you, Will? I know you're, you're a big fan of indigenous people.
1: Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know where you're leading
0: with that sometimes i just don't know how to tee you up and so i just sure choose. yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> i don't know i just wanted to make sure there wasn't some weird undercurrent with uh, with that one um yeah i mean i think we've really kind of covered the gambit i mean at the same time though i feel like there is so much more we could say we could really dive into all the, the wonderful things about
0: the movie i feel like we had to make up for like oppenheimer we, would, we didn't go into as much detail yeah. uh, for a movie that big and so i wanted to make sure we did it for this one
1: fair fair um Yeah, I mean, for the time being, I just hope people see it, especially in the theater. Uh, I I was lucky enough to see it in Dolby, uh, where it was great. Comfy seats, wonderful screen. Um, I hope everyone else gets a chance to check it out in theaters. And I'm really glad that uh, it's getting a much bigger rollout than uh, The Irishman did theatrically.
0: Same here, Um, yeah. Uh, If you if you are a listener in the Bay Area, definitely check it out uh, at the IMAX uh, while you can in uh, San Francisco, the AMC Metreon. That's a fantastic way to watch this movie. Biggest screen you can find um, if if you happen to find it. But yeah, Dolby IMAX is definitely one of the ways to do it. Um, So I just always want to shout out that IMAX theater because it's one of the better ones, I think, like in the area um, that I've been to. Let's play the Rotten Tomatoes game, though. All right, guys. Let's see how Mike does. I, I don't know if I, I don't know if we've ever had Mike versus Will. We have 369 reviews counted. One of them's mine, so you know, you know take that into consideration. I guess uh, we'll start with you, Mike, since you are the guest of honor. What's your guess? What do you think the uh, critic score is?
2: Uh 94.
0: Will?
1: Uh, I'm gonna say 96.
0: Mike takes this one. It's 93. So w- oh. Mike was only one off very good very good and uh i am there is a mirror behind mike so i don't see google showing rotten tomatoes so we're good uh okay audience score we have a thousand plus verified ratings and uh, this one will start with you will ashton what do you got
1: this is tricky um i'm feeling like it's 84.
0: okay and then uh mike over
2: mike got says 87.
0: mike overboard no, that means you didn't get it because you were over. well <laughs> <same> oh! <laughs> Will it's Will was only one off. Uh, so this time Will was the one uh, within reach. So so far it's one for one. Let's see if Cinema Score uh, can shift the balance. Yeah, so as I, I say seen, uh,
1: yeah. I was spoiled on the Letterbox one, so I can't contribute to that one.
0: I haven't seen the Letterbox one, so we can uh, I can compete for that one. Sure. Uh, Cinema Score though, how about that? Uh, what do you got for that one, Michael?
2: what's it is this one that's a letter i always forget yeah the yeah the, it's,
0: yeah so the highest is a plus and then the lowest is f
1: i'm just i'm, I'm just gonna say a
0: okay and then uh will ash
1: um i'm gonna go a minus
0: Ooh, will that's why you're the king the king of comedy it's an a minus exactly mm. and so yeah, you win. You win these rounds, but I hey, look, I haven't looked at the letterbox, so I can compete with uh, Mike on that. Now, will you should probably check to make sure it hasn't changed. I, I was say, that's what I'm doing right now. Okay, nice, nice. Uh, um, so it is I have exactly, been on the letterbox, but I didn't look at it because uh, yeah. I was looking at reviews. But yeah, no, it fine, is fine. what I was told. So I'll let you guys guess, Mike. It'll be pretty amazing if you win because I looked at so many reviews. I have a pretty good sense of the movies, like you know star rating so i have a pretty big advantage here but i it's gonna be insane. like if you beat me you're gonna like you if you have fight. the
2: advantage you have the advantage so i think you should go first i need to hear your go guess first.
0: first yeah i set the curve i set the curve yeah. gonna, okay so i'm waffling a little bit because i know i know it's got to be in the force based on what i saw um my thing is that like i barely saw any super low ones so i'm gonna i'm gonna go a little higher than normal like we, I think one of the highest we've ever seen was four point five. I'm gonna say it's like four point four.
1: All right, and four, uh, I'm gonna say four point three. One that's of you—that's a good guess
0: because that's that's more realistic.
1: <laughs> one of you are exactly correct. So you want to guess who guess. it is? It is it's Mike who over. is Oh yeah! I'll he,
0: say this time was he a, was underboard. Or no, yeah. right, right, holst. right on board. He is on, right on board. Right on board. He's <laughs> on
1: the ship, and he's. You know
2: the the champ of this episode. If, if you didn't go first, John, I was gonna say four one ah. dang
0: that well, you, you got, you, you you got, got me, to me to raise my bid I knew I knew when you were saying it too you were like, well, I need an advantage and I was like that's fair enough because yeah, I knew basically yeah that I was kind of he's he could just point it prices right it with me right now.
1: what's more impressive is that Mike is not on letterbox, so it's a pure guess
0: i I'm waiting for that day, Mike. I feel like you are a prototypical letterbox user even though you don't already have one. You know, I, you know, the public doesn't need
2: to know my opinions on movies, just my friends. Well, the, yeah, we, and John. Just, your
0: friends are on Letterboxd. We're waiting for you. We want to hang out.
1: He's afraid that he's going to get uh, shunted from the community for his opinion uh, on Mad Max I Fury see. Road. There I'm not
0: going to
2: be worried about that because everybody's wrong about that goddamn movie. <laughs>
0: Uh, for our next episode I think we're going to be hopefully we're going to talk about The Killer I think that would be fun um, but it kind of oh. just depends because it's in limited release so we might have to wait till it's on Netflix um,
1: uh, uh, I thought we were talking uh, Five Nights at Freddy's
0: oh yeah I haven't seen that.
1: that is on, on Peacock, uh, I,
0: missed Peacock my, yeah. I missed my screen I, okay, right. I
1: would gladly talk and dis- or see and discuss uh, The Killer but it's not playing near me I don't have a screen
0: as soon as it is we should definitely talk about it
1: Sure, I'm glad we talked about that
2: over the Marvels. Hater. Can I say one more thing before we we get off? If you like this movie, if you like the book, and you want to try something else in a similar vein, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood should be stop
0: number one. All right,
1: Great book, yeah.
0: Mike Mike is starting an offshoot of Bookaholics. I like it.
1: I'll (laughs) I'll gladly uh, take part in Bookaholics if it ever comes to be
0: that's going to be it for us this week on cinema hawks thanks so much for listening we'll be back next week from the internet california i'm john groney
1: from the internet pennsylvania i'm lush
0: how do you want to sign off mike and i'm mike <laughs> brett slash brendan frazier